with a research scientist uh, from JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Farujan Gorjan. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. Great to meet you. Yeah, I got your information and we got in touch through a former guest who I'm hoping to have back on soon, uh, Jason Rhodes. When I had uh, Jason Rhodes on, we talked, and I'll throw a link up to the, the, uh, our interview. I talked to him about the Euclid space mission uh, because Freemasonry is very, uh, very connected to ideas about geometry, uh, kind of going back to our operative roots um, back when, you know, making sure you had a right angle and knew how to create a right angle and, you know, the pharaoh didn't lop your head off going back to the uh, days of uh, Egypt. But just how geometry and our understanding of geometry was not only helping us understand the world, but in the case of Euclid, uh, the universe. Yeah. Um, but he suggested uh, that I speak with yourself uh, about the Spitzer uh, space mission, which as you, you described it to me before we started recording, you're kind of on a, a greatest hits tour regarding the, the mission. So if you could spend a few minutes, uh, by all means, what is the uh, Spitzer telescope? Um, kind of what did it do? What was its purpose? Uh, and when you say, you know, you're on a greatest hits uh, tour, uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, um... In the late early early late seventies early eighties in the U.S., uh, there was this move for a program by NASA called the Great Observatories Program. So the Great Observatories were meant to be uh, several, and in fact, eventually four uh, space telescopes that would overcome the difficulties of doing astronomy from the ground. Now. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is the most famous version of that, where, again, optical light certainly reaches the ground, and we have ground-based telescopes, but obviously looking through the atmosphere where it wobbles and so on, it doesn't give you the clearest images. But also, the Hubble Space Telescope was sensitive to ultraviolet light, which doesn't reach the ground. Um, and so the idea was that, uh, so that was the first one of the great observatories. And then NASA would have three more great observatories, each one uh, going to a particular other wavelength region, which is not, you know, detectable or easily detectable from the ground. There was the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. Uh, again, it's a good thing gamma rays don't reach us to the ground, or if you read comic books, would it all be incredible hulks, or <laughs> they're certainly not conducive to life. Um, similarly with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, we don't, most of our, our atmosphere absorbs the X-rays, which is great. Uh, not great for astronomy, but great for human and any other kind of life because you don't want to be just come constantly bombarded by x-rays. Uh, and the fourth of the great observatories uh, was initially called the Space Infrared Telescope Facility and which would become this, uh, renamed the Spitzer Space Telescope. And that one was to work at infrared wavelengths. So these are wavelengths of light that are longer than our eyes can see. And we're usually uh, familiar with infrared light in terms of infrared remotes, like your TV remote and so on, the light that it sends, it communicates with your TV via light, except it's not light your eyes can see. It's a wavelength that it's invisible to you, but it's certainly there. Um, and then the, um, and Spitzer actually works even a little bit longer wavelengths than the infrared remotes that we have. And um, 
it's very difficult to do infrared astronomy from the ground, not impossible, but one of the difficulties from doing infrared from the ground is the fact that uh, there's water vapor in our atmosphere, which is certainly very good for us <laughs> uh, in general, but water vapor is very good at absorbing infrared light. And in fact, it's the most common um, uh, molecule in the air that absorbs infrared and gives us a limited greenhouse effect, which makes the earth warm enough for us to exist in. Now, uh, we often hear about carbon dioxide as being uh, the infrared absorbing and hence heating and greenhouse gas. It is, and in fact, it's actually, it's, the, its combination with water vapor is that is the, the difficult thing that is, um, it absorbs and a lot of infrared light as well uh, and giving us a worse greenhouse effect, which we don't want, but separate from that, uh, all that water vapor in the atmosphere gives us a couple of narrow windows where we can see uh, and observe the universe. But what we want is to observe at multiple wavelengths, lots of different infrared wavelengths of light. And that was the job of Spitzer. The other thing about infrared light, which people may be familiar with, is that uh, we often Think, uh, hear about in infrared cameras where you can see things in, at night or they're called, often called night vision cameras. Night vision cameras can operate in one of two ways. One is they either amplify whatever the ambient light is, whatever light is available. Um, that's just taking the optical light that our eyes would see and just boosting it. The other way is infrared light. That is everything that's warm, anything that's warm gives off light. And usually things that are just, you know, a little warm to, you know, uh, fairly, and, and, you know, basically they give off light and that most of that life, light often turns, is infrared light. And so the advantage of going into space is the fact that our atmosphere actually emits infrared light. So you don't want to look at the universe through this glowing foreground of our own atmosphere. <laughs> In addition to the fact that a lot of that, the water vapor in the atmosphere also absorbs that infrared light coming from space. So the uh, Spitzer Space Telescope was designed to basically overcome all of those things. First, by being above the atmosphere, which makes life a lot easier. So you don't have something absorbing that light. And the other part of it is that if it's warm, it will emit its own infrared light. So you're seeing the light from your own telescope as opposed to the stars and the galaxies and everything else that's out there. So what you want is your telescope to be very cold. And one of the advantages of the Spitzer Space Telescope was in, by being in space is that you can actually cool it down. And that's the image of it floating behind me. And you see that big shield on one side. Uh, that shield actually protects it from the sun and makes it very cool on the, the tube side, the telescope side. On the other side of that shield is a solar panel. So that's how we get our power. But then no sunlight is allowed to fall onto the telescope itself. In addition to that, we carried liquid helium, which is very, very cold. And so we use that to cool the telescope and the instruments within the telescope. So we could be very cold so that we're not emitting any of the light that we hope to detect from things that are not our telescope from stars, galaxies, and so on. Uh, so that was um, the genesis of the idea. And then the technology, you know, a lot of technological development had to be done to both have, have it operate the way it was operating at those cold temperatures, although there have been other infrared space observatories, this was very innovative. But then the other part of it was that, you know, once it was launched in 2003, um, it was in what's called an Earth trailing orbit because the Earth itself is warm. 
So we don't want to be next to a warm thing. If we are, then you have to actually expend more of your liquid helium to keep yourself cold. So we're in what's called an Earth trailing orbit. So we basically had the spacecraft get just enough of a push so that it started drifting away from the Earth in the same orbit as the Earth is in the sun. That is, we're orbiting the sun at one year uh, intervals, just like the Earth is, except we were just slowed down a little bit so that we were just getting further and further separated from the Earth. So we didn't get any heat from the Earth. We have the sun shield uh, blocking the sun from the telescope, and we could go down to nearly five degrees Kelvin um, to uh, basically be very cold. So then anything that was warmer than that in the universe, we could you know, detect the light and observe it. That's that something you said uh, got me thinking. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. I never thought of it in this way before. Um, you kind of talked about how there was the initial um, desire or, or initial question about researching um, infrared light. And then you said, you know, you had to have the technological innovations catch up to the initial idea to make it possible, uh, such as whether it be the, the shield or the liquid helium and the cooling system. That's it. You know, with NASA, with JPL, how often is it um, that, you know, the idea comes first and then that forces innovations and technological advancements to make the idea possible? Uh, or does it ever work the other way, which is kind of a new technology develops and you recognize it can be used for applications that were initially thought of or considered? Great question. And it actually works both ways. Um, we usually have ideas uh, and there's technological development uh, that spurs basically the technological development. We want to, particularly in the infrared, the idea was uh, we want to look at things that are that tend to be much cooler than our sun. So our sun is very hot, therefore it also emits in the optical as well as you know in, in infrared light. Uh, but things that are cooler tend to be just mostly in infrared light. And um, the idea was that we needed to get better and better detectors. And so that was pushing the development of that technology because we wanted to function better at infrared wavelengths. In the 60s, actually, this little, the technology came from uh, the military because they were doing um, heat-seeking missiles, which again, you know, something is warm, it's emitting infrared light. And so the initial develop the, for electronic infrared detectors was spurred on by the military. But then that technology was then passed on to astronomy. But then we, they, the military's needs were very different than ours. We, we, we work on very, we don't need to expose, you know, instantaneously. It's not very fast situations. We tend to, you know, to expose for a long time, but we need higher sensitivity, lower noise in our detectors. And so uh, for many years they worked. Um, so the development of infrared detectors was being driven by what we wanted to do in astronomy. Simultaneously though, we often get, you know, developments that, you know, that come to fruition, but from other um, uh, reasons. And in this case, again, the military had developed the infrared detector and we literally had took, it was one pixel in the 60s and they could take that one pixel <laughs> that they'd gotten from the military and then basically just march it across the sky to get an infrared image created. So I'm not saying it was like 
you know, right now we have, we're you know used to one megapixel, which is you know multiple megapixels. You know, that's a thousand by a thousand array of pixels. There we had just one. So that was the technology that came to be, and it was used for astronomy. And its use showed that improving it would be giving us a lot of dividends in uh, astronomical observations. So then that spurred the development of infrared detectors uh, to do astronomy. Same uh, with um, uh, the cryogenic systems, that is the, the systems that kept the telescope cold. It's been a feedback kind of thing. It was developed for various other reasons. And then that was applied to situations that were for astronomy. And then we could do better astronomy, which meant we needed different kinds of cryogenic systems. So it's always a feedback. And so a good chunk of a JPL is uh, specifically as, as an example, is uh, there's a lot of engineers at JPL who are working on developing the technology that will help space exploration. And oftentimes it's driven by something very specific. We need to achieve this. Therefore, you know, they're working on the technology to allow that particular science to happen. But oftentimes we get situations where, you know, things have been developed elsewhere that somebody says, hey, you know, what if we use that for astronomy? And so people go, hey, well, let's take that and use it. And then if, if it becomes useful, then people go and um, uh, use that technology. But it's, it's, it's always, we're always on the lookout for something new, but at the same time, we're not just waiting for that uh, new thing is that there's efforts being made constantly to either create or improve the technology so that we can do astronomy or do better astronomy. Does it ever work, work the other way in the sense of, um... You know, a, a piece of technology is developed either related to space exploration or, or otherwise defense, whatever it is, and then uh, somebody recognizes a use for that technology that perhaps wasn't initially envisioned or it causes people to, uh, you know, reevaluate as opposed to, I know, you know, the one way as you described, right, is there's a specific need and then, you know, uh, you ask an engineer or the engineers, we need to do X. Can you develop the technology? Has there ever been any, a, the opposite way as well, where technology is perhaps developed for one purpose, but you realize it can be used for something else very well? Well, we're actually using it right now. In fact, almost all of us. So the particular kind of uh, detector that sits in most, if not all, cell phone cameras is called the CMOS. That was developed at JPL. Why? Well, what they needed when you have a space mission is a camera that is small, that is light, that uses very little power because all of those things are at a premium when you're in a space mission. You can't be something that's too heavy. You can say, oh, it's just a camera. The camera can be heavy. Well, then everybody can say that. And suddenly your spacecraft is way too heavy to launch or too, way too heavy to launch economically. That is, we don't have you know, tons of money all the time to be, you know, every, every ounce counts, every gram counts. And so that was developed with the express purpose of let's not have our cameras be too heavy or use too much power. And then somebody said, you know, these new cell phone things, they don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of room and you don't want them to be too heavy. What if we put a camera in there? What kind of camera, can, what kind of detector can you use? And that was, you know, that was from the space program. And we usually call these things spinoffs. 
um, that is a, it was spun off of something that was, again, entirely motivated and driven by something very specific to space exploration. I, yeah, that, that brings to mind for myself kind of a, an interesting connection or correlation uh, in, in some Masonic teachings that we have. There's, there's this one line uh, when you're getting your degrees, which I, I've always really liked. Um, the basic premise of it is, you know, uh, as you increase in knowledge, you kind of increase in social utility. You can benefit. The, the more you know, the more knowledge you have, the, the more beneficial you can be to the world around you. Um, and that's something I really think we can sometimes lose track of when it comes to matters of quote unquote pure research. Uh, so when it's, you know, exploring the galaxy, exploring other planets, um, you know, there can be some people have, have questions about like, what is the practical value of X or Y? Uh, I guess my thing is you, you never know for sure. You know, the more knowledge you have, the more likely you are to find practical benefits down the line. The, the quote, what was the quote about the electron? I can't remember what it was. I think somebody when they discovered the electron, <laughs> I read some books said like, it'll never be useful for anything. It's just a cool thing we found. Well, it was very much like that. I don't know if it was specifically for the electron. I, I can't remember, but um, a little over a hundred years ago, um, the hottest field in physics was this new uh, idea of quantum mechanics. This, this, the, the, what is the physics of the very small, which includes the electron and you know, the proton, understanding the nucleus of the atom, the fact that it had a nucleus and, you know, which was, had positive charges with the protons and the neutrons in there. And then the electrons were, you know, orbiting and floating around. And all of this stuff at that time was entirely, I wouldn't say purely theoretical because there were experiments to verify the theories as well, but there was nobody who was doing it with the idea that this has a practical application. Fast forward to today, everything we do is based on our understanding of quantum mechanics. Everything that has these solid state devices, these very, very tiny, you know, all the stuff that's crammed into the chip, into your, in, the, in your computer you use or in the phone you use or in the you know, DVD player you have and all of this stuff is entirely a consequence of our understanding of quantum mechanics. Now, again, nobody was thinking that this is going to have some sort of a practical application. And... Uh, you, you don't know how long it's going to take, but uh, there's all, it's, it's a very reasonable question. And I don't bristle at this at all, that some people say, oh, you know, you know, if you're doing pure science, you shouldn't be questioned because it's so noble. And no, no, I mean, there's nobility, there's value in knowing things. Um, if you ever watched old uh, MGM movies, uh, the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer movies, the, it, its title was, you know, Art for Art's Sake, it was in, written in Latin. And there's knowledge for knowledge's sake. That is, you, you gain knowledge because knowing more helps you in general understanding. Now, there is a real place for that, I think, in research. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to detach ourselves from the world. There's, there's definitely, then you can do applied research. And then eventually, then it just becomes what we would say, you know, it goes into the realm of engineering. So how do you implement what you know at this point? Uh, and so fundamentally, um, 
in terms of how is it useful, we don't know how it will be useful. Just like the people who created quantum mechanics had no idea how it would be useful. But as you were saying, exactly, as the knowledge increases, the connections become more. And at some point, suddenly it's not only um, just simply useful or it would, it's nice, it becomes indispensable. That is, our, our, our current world would not be possible. This conversation we're having would not be possible had it not been for the work that many great physicists, Einstein, Heisenberg, Planck, uh, Bohr, the very famous physics people, but not one of them could have possibly envisioned that what they were working on would have any consequence of like this. And similarly in astronomy, that's part of it as well, uh, that we don't know how this will be applicable to our lives in the future. Having said all of that, I will say you know something for knowledge for the sake of knowledge or art for the sake of art. Um, there is inherent value, I think, in that. So, beyond whether it has some, you know, something that is a practical return into the, in the future. And I think the way to look at that is, you know, what is the value of the Mona Lisa? Now, yes, it has a dollar value associated with it. That's not what I'm asking. So I'm saying, what if somehow, if we wave the wand and magically all the Mona Lisa's copies and the original went away from it did not exist, or any of the great works of art, or sculptures, or even architecture, the pyramids, let's say, boom, gone. Is there, you know, if the pyramids aren't there in Egypt, yes, their tourist value is no longer there. But I would say there's something more that there's value in those great creations. And I think if if we waved the wand and went away, the, there's no practical use of the pyramid at this point. There's no practical use of the Mona Lisa. But it is, I would argue, and people may argue against it, but I would argue that the world will have lost value if those things did not exist. And I would argue the same for astronomy is that knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, has its own inherent value. I, yeah, that is definitely, I think, a Masonic teaching is, is the idea of knowledge um, as having an inherent value and uh, being a benefit to, you know, to, to oneself and to one's ability to exist in, in the world. That, you know, the more knowledge you have, the, the better citizen you're going to be. Regardless of the quote-unquote practical application of, of any of these things in your life, you know I'm I'm not a builder, so I've never needed to make a right angle, you know. To, but I still it's still good to know, you know, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. I feel like just having that knowledge ultimately makes me more useful to society as a whole and and a better utility to it. So lifelong learning and and one of the reasons I I'm so honored to have scientists and people from JPL on this podcast is that Masonic idea of, you know, constant learning and lifelong, lifelong seeking of knowledge, so to speak. Speaking of, of seeking of knowledge, because I'm a dummy and I don't know very much, uh, I guess going back to the Spitzer telescope, mm -hmm. you know, why, why is it important to study infrared in particular, or even more generally before, you know, because there, there were four 
telescopes, each studying a different type of light, whether it be the visible spectrum or infrared. Um, I guess, why is it important to differentiate and focus on infrared as well as visible, as well as you know, UV, X-ray, all the types of um, uh, light spectrum? So that's a great question. And it's one of those things. So there's sort of a much more direct practical version of it that I can give you is that, uh, yes, I mean, from the gamma rays to the infrared, that's a long range of wavelengths of light, but we can just, what if we just talk about the wavelengths of light that our eyes can see, you know, how much less would you know about the world if you did not see all the colors? And, 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 and some people can answer that if they're colorblind. Um, that's the thing is that we have this range of colors in the rainbow from indigo to red. Um, but if you, if we had less of those, or you couldn't see, if you only saw the reds and never saw the blues, the greens and the purples, you would know less about the world around you in one form or another. So there's that part of it, but what's the reason, um, you want to, um, follow all of those kinds of wavelengths is because different physical processes, different things that are happening uh, generate different wavelengths of light. And the most common way that is, is how hot something is. The hotter something is, the shorter the wavelength it emits. So if something is, now we're sort of used to this in our own lives, what we may not you know, pay that much attention to it is, you know, if you put, you know, an iron into a fire and it starts glowing red, we think, oh my God, that's very hot. But if you really look in a furnace, then it gets orange and may have even a, eventually hot enough to be bluish. Or if you see an arc welder, which we associate with something that's very hot, the welding is done and you see it, it's incredibly blue. And of course, the guy has to have the big mask with the <laughs> thing covering the eyes. Um, but that's because it's very hot and very hot things emit very blue light or shorter wavelength light. And in fact, in the universe, things get so hot in cases where they start emitting ultraviolet light and then X-ray light and even gamma ray light. Although gamma ray light and, and some of X-ray light, there's different processes that can generate that it's not just simply hot in terms of thermal heat. Um, and then things that there's a lot of things that are very cool. Their temperature isn't very hot, so they're not emitting very uh, much light. And that's one of the things that the Spitzer Space Telescope was designed to study was these things called brown dwarfs. These are things that are larger than planets, but tend to be smaller or less massive than stars. So they don't have that intense fusion, the, the, the conversion of hydrogen into helium at their cores, which generates a lot of energy, which makes you know stars glow. And our sun does a fairly good job of it. And you can look out and it's giving mostly you know, white-ish light um, because it's a combination of lots of different wavelengths. Uh, and if, if our star had more mass and it had a lot more energy at the core, it would generate a lot more energy because that mass would be forcing a lot more fusion to be happening at its core, uh, that would be, our star would be blue. And if it was less massive, it would be cooler, it would be red. But brown dwarfs, for example, are so cool that most of, they don't emit almost any light in the optical. They're emitting most of their light in the infrared. So to study that, that was one of the goals of the Spitzer Space Telescope. The other advantage of um, uh, multiple wavelengths of light is that 
certain things block certain wavelengths of light. As I was mentioning, the water vapor in our atmosphere blocks a lot of infrared light. Um, but in the rest of the universe, there's a lot of different things that block, for example, optical light. But just, there's a lot of dust in the universe that, that dust blocks a lot of the um, optical light that's coming to us. And oftentimes when stars are forming, they're enshrouded in dust. So if you wanna study stars forming, it's very hard to do it in the optical because you can't see through that dust. But infrared light is actually very good at penetrating the dust. So Spitzer could look at places where we couldn't look with the Hubble or other optical ground-based telescopes. And so we could study what was going on at that, you know, in the cores of these um, clouds where young stars were forming. So fundamentally, it's uh, uh, the different wavelengths of light are really giving you, each one is like a different window in the universe. And there are certain things that block infrared light that don't block other wavelengths of light, like, like I said, like water vapor. And then it goes on and on for different uh, wavelengths. So each wavelength in and of itself has an advantage. And then when you put them all together, then it's like putting all the colors of the rainbow together as an analogy to the optical light. You get a you know multicolor, full spectrum view of something. And uh, so you can understand it a lot better. And so that's one of the key reasons why the great observatories were done initially. Uh, and, uh, and again, those aren't the only wavelengths of light. You know, it goes even longer wavelengths than radio wavelengths, but the atmosphere doesn't really block radio wavelengths. So we can do that from the ground. <laughs> do, you, do you ever think it will be possible? This is kind of more maybe a, a metaphysical type of question. Um, do you ever think it'll be possible through the use of, you know, technology or uh, maybe some type of, like artificial intelligence to get the quote unquote full, full picture of, of the universe in the sense that, you know, for the first, you know, I don't know how long humans have been around, say 200,000 years from hominids, right? We, we were only really aware of light in the visible spectrum. That, that we could see. Um, and then, you know, through the use of technology, we recognized there's actually light waves that our senses on their own aren't able to detect. Um, so, you know, for so long, we only had a limited view of just light, let alone the physical reality, quote unquote. And then we recognize through technology, you know, there's, uh, in this case, infrared light, there's there's x-rays, there's, there's gamma rays, there's radio waves. Um, and all of these pieces of technology take what, you know, our limited senses and then expand them so we can see a more and more fulsome picture yeah. of the universe, uh, just like the, the Spitzer telescope does. Do you ever think there'll be a, a point at which, um, you know, technology will become such that we are able to get the full, the full quote unquote picture of what the universe is, a theory of everything maybe, or, or, I guess, how would you test that though? Because you could always assume you know everything until the next thing comes along. That's a, that's a good question. I think it's a, certainly a difficult thing uh, to really project forward, but that is really what our jobs are. Although, I mean, we all specialize in different aspects of the, you know, what specific areas of astronomy since the universe is big and everybody studies different parts of it um, and the different bits and pieces that go into it. But the reality of it is, all, that is what we would like to ultimately have is, is, a, is a coherent picture supported by evidence of how the universe started, how it evolved, and how it got to the point where we are today. And 
we've certainly gotten, you know, we're a lot further along on that, you know, than we were before. I mean, people, even just barely a hundred years ago, people didn't even understand that, you know, the universe, what they called the universe, wasn't, you know, all simply the stars and uh, that people could see. They didn't understand this concept of galaxies, which are, they used to call them island universes, but they weren't, you know, they, they thought there were these uh, things which were, you know, nearby as opposed to hundreds of billions of stars very, very far away. And that the fact that there were hundreds of billions of galaxies out there. Um, so uh, the, uh, we've come a long way and the idea that we are living in a universe that is evolving that did have a point of origin at this point in terms of time that there's a beginning to the universe. And it's um, been a great success of astronomy, but there are very, very many aspects which we have not figured out. We certainly don't know what most of the universe is made out of. I mean, we initially thought, you know, wow, atoms, great. We understand atoms. That's what most of the universe is made of. And certainly what most of the universe that emits light or interacts with light is made out of the kinds of atoms that we're familiar with. And, but there seems to be some kind of matter out there uh, labeled dark matter and that does not seem to interact with light. It's not simply that it's a color black. It's that having gone through all of these wavelengths, we know that it exists based on its gravity because galaxies, if you look at how they're uh, rotating, all the stars are rotating, they're moving much faster than you would expect them to. You would expect them to be flying apart and they're not. So there's a lot yet to, for us to figure out. Uh, and what I would say is that, you know, for astronomers, that's job security. <laughs> um, but at the same time, ultimately that's what we want, but could we, you know, how well we can understand it is really partly dependent on the instruments that we have. And we're getting better instruments as time goes on and we're honing in on what kind of instruments we need to have. We've recently even, um, uh, developed what's called uh, gravitational wave detectors. This was something that was theorized under Einstein's theory of general relativity, which describes gravity. And that as things move, and certainly as things are more massive, things like black holes, which are lots of mass concentrated in a little volume, they generate these ripples, these waves in what's called space-time. But basically, um, that's not a light wave. It's a, it's a fundamental disturbance in the fabric of space. And now we've been able to detect that and that won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. Um, so now, again, we're, we're increasing our tools to increase our understanding of how the universe works. And that's what we want. Ultimately, we want a good coherent story of how the universe came to be and how it functions. But I think we're a long way from that at this point. <laughs> you, you used uh, the word coherence a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I guess, could you expand on on that, what what would make a um, coherent you know, theory or coherent picture of the universe versus um, an incoherent one? Like, is that connected to kind of the struggle between, you know, connecting general relativity with quantum mechanics, or, or I guess what what do you mean by a coherent picture? Oh, it's a good question. No, you brought up exactly the example I'm saying is that. We have these two aspects of physics, general relativity and quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics describing all of the physics that happens on the very smallest scales, general relativity describing things and on the things that are on the biggest scales. But at, there's an intersection, which particularly happens at black holes where you have a lot of mass concentrated in a little volume. So since it's a little volume, quantum mechanics should be ruling that. But because there's so much mass, gravity has that. And that's incoherent. They, they, they are not 
really doing a good job of predicting what will happen. So that tells us that we have a, a problem in our understanding of nature. Uh, that is, it, it, that's that's what I meant by you know coherent because there's these two different things, two different theories. Each one in its realm works very well, but when you bring them together, <laughs> they're, they're not really matching up very well. Uh, and so that's I think the key area that there's a great deal that can be learned is how do we have um, a single physical description of how matter interacts both through the fundamental forces of electromagnetism and there's the weak force and the strong force which happens on uh, operates on the atomic scale and gravity which is a very very weak force which under quantum mechanics it should be somehow related to the other forces but general relativity actually completely abandons the quantum mechanical idea where everything is particles and it's this idea of waves going through or the fabric of space being altered so that's the main thing i meant by coherence is that um you can't have your description for how one part of the universe works not match up with your description of how the other part works. I, I wonder, is that, is that um, um, you know, desire for coherence or, or I guess, is, is that a statement of desire based on Kind of our our evolution, right? Human beings being, um, you know, evolved as, as pattern-seeking beings, right? We have a desire to certainly our our survival, especially in the early days, was based on being able to recognize and, and see patterns in the world around us, and then apply those to our lives, whether it be you know uh, following animals to hunt or seasons for farming and agriculture. Um, so so. You know, our, our desire for coherence or, or the, the, the use of kind of the struggle people have with, say, quantum uh, mechanics versus general relativity. Do you think that actually could it be that that doesn't so much reflect a that's not a problem in nature so much as just our brains are wired to desire coherence in life? Or do you think that? When you see incoherence, it actually re represents a lack of understanding on our part and something that can be, be solved. Uh, I would say it's the latter. I mean, I, I completely concede. I mean, humans are pattern-seeking animals, and so we, we tend to want to see things, and we want to see things in a particular way, or we're hardwired to see things in, 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 in certain patterns. Uh, but in, the, in this case, and in the case of, I think, our, our general understanding of the universe, is that whenever you get these incoherences, then there's something wrong um, or there's something new to be found. And, and I'll give you an example again from, this happened in both physics, the intersection of physics and astronomy. So um, once the initial understanding of light came to be, people thought that, uh, started understanding light as a wave because you could have like little slits and the light would interfere with itself the same way if you have like two little holes and water is going through, you have the ripples and the ripples can positively interact or you know negatively interact. So you get extra high peaks or extra low valleys. Um, and so people said, oh, light is a wave. And the understanding was that, well, if it's a wave, it needs to be, there needs to be a medium through which the wave travels. Okay, something needs to be waving for a wave to go. The water needs to be, or if I'm sound waves, the air needs to be vibrating in some fashion for the wave to travel. 
And somebody said, well, okay, well, how does the light get from the sun to the earth? Well, there needs, under that understanding, there needed to be a medium which filled the space between the sun and the earth for the light to wave that medium for it to get to us. And so people called it the luminiferous ether, that there was this ether. But then somebody else said, but wait, if the earth is orbiting the sun and it's going through this ether, wait a that's going to have viscosity, which is going to slow the earth down and we're just going to spiral into the sun. And they said, well, we're not spiraling into the sun. So this luminiferous ether, we found something new about it, about the luminiferous ether. The ether has zero viscosity. Okay. But then people started measuring the speed of light. And I was like, oh my God, the speed of light is very fast. And for a wave to travel through something, the speed of the wave depends on the stiffness of the material. And so since light is traveling so fast, this material should be incredibly stiff to have light wave through it very quickly. So suddenly we have the ether, which has to be zero viscosity and incredibly stiff to match the observations that we have. And people started looking for it and they couldn't find this material that this happened. So it wasn't until later when people understood that light, even though it behaves like a wave, you can see it as particles moving out. So it doesn't need a medium if you look at it that way. But also there's another way of looking at it, even as a wave, it is an electric wave, which causes a magnetic field, which causes an electric, electric, electricity and magnetism are connected. So it doesn't need a medium. But the fact that they had predicted that this ether should exist based on their understanding of, of how light worked as a wave, and the fact that they couldn't find the ether that there, there's some incredible experiments done to find the, this ether. It was the most important of it, which was called the Michelson-Morley experiment. People can look it up. But fundamentally, again, it was that incongruence. It wasn't simply that we were looking for something to be consistent, but the, experiment, the experiments were saying one thing while the theory was saying something else. So one of them had to give. And either the experiment was, done correct, was not done properly or correctly, or the theory was not correct. Uh, and the experimenters got better and better at it, and it just would not yield in that sense. So then the theory had to change, and it did. And this, it was partly what we got, got us quantum mechanics, and that in, the, in our understanding of quantum mechanics, everything is our particles that travel, and the particle of light is the photon. But it is one of those things. As soon as you have this incongruence that there's something that's not matching up, something has to give. And, and I think that's what I'm what we would really like is so that you don't have these inconsistencies or conflicts or, uh, or predictions which the experiments aren't finding. So that's, that I think is really the exciting part of science. Uh, it's, as scientists, it's great when it, you, know, you do an experiment and it verifies your theory, it's very satisfying. But more often than and that I would say, it's even more exciting, maybe not as satisfying, it's more disturbing is like, and you get an experiment or you have an observation and you go, uh, uh, what's that? Or that's not supposed to be there, or that's not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> and then that is an opportunity to learn something new about the universe. Yeah, and that's a, the fascinating thing about, uh, I think, people. Um, you know, I, I have an interview coming up with uh, some neuroscientists. Uh, one thing I talk about a lot, uh, and this goes to 
kind of Ms. Freemason's operative roots as well as our, our buildings, um, talking about the connection between neuroscience uh, and architecture. Um, and one thing we talk about is, um, or we will be talking about is, and you see this in Freemasonry, you know, when we see, for example, a, a right angle or certain patterns in architecture, going back to the ancient Greeks, the, um, like the golden ratio, even if we can't, um, we don't have the training or the knowledge, so we can't physically or we, we can't verbally express why, uh, you know, I guess there's been experiments and stuff that have shown that uh, on the perception level from the brain, it just prefers seeing things that fall into these golden ratios, um, right angles, things like that. It seems that human beings, uh, by our nature, uh, are very inquisitive and have a desire to see, have a desire to to find coherence, whether it be in scientific theories or in architecture or whatever it may be. Um, and so, I think that's probably ultimately one one of the reasons that you know human beings have been so successful through the years is we'll investigate something if it doesn't quite seem to fit, because um, it's in our nature to want to. See figure out why something is not fitting together properly and then see if there's a way that we can explain it or make it fit correctly. Um, right, there's oh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, I mean, it's not even a matter of agreement. I think that's the, that is like human nature. There is, we do have a sense of that certain things have to be in a certain way. And I think, uh, but what I would say is that uh, that shouldn't be conf uh, sort of conflated with, the idea that we, you know, some people do want to make things fit, even if they're not fitting, and just sort of pretend that that's the good thing about science is done uh, uh, by um, the how how could I describe this? I guess that that's yeah, that would, would be one of the benefits of, for example, JPL NASA of the scientific method is. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it provides some type of framework and rigorous training. So um, you can differentiate between theories or ideas or statements that are, are based purely on a desire to, to make something fit versus um, an actual scientific rigorous method where you recognize, you know, you, 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 you perform experimentation and you recognize that it's not enough that something sound good or sound reasonable. It needs to be tested and observed. Um, and you need to be very rigorous so that you're not allowing your own human nature bias for order to creep into your experiments. Yeah. So what I will say is that that's the ultimate goal and that's the ideal. That rarely is how it works because human bias biases your experiments, biases those kinds of things. But the beauty of the scientific method isn't simply that it's just each individual trying to apply it, is that there are others who are also trying to apply it with their own biases. So in that conflict of um, trying to, and again, I'm not saying that people try to be biased, but we are oftentimes just are unable to see the bias within ourselves and even within a certain idea that you know is, has taken hold within a particular scientific branch that will stay a long time but what's interesting is about it about science is that the idea was that some somebody had proposed the idea with that um, uh, 
science can only advance once the older people die and so take their prejudices away and sort of these new ideas. But it's not quite like that. Uh, so we do have our prejudices. We're human beings. That's the way it works. But the scientific process, by pitting these ideas against each other, that the experimentation has to come constantly, you know, uh, be something that supports whatever point of view that you're doing, uh, basically makes it so that there have been times, and astronomy is a very good example, although there was a lot of people who did not think the universe had, you know, a particular age, they thought the universe was infinite. Once various pieces of evidence came to be, the, the expansion of the universe, what's called, and then the remnant heat from that initial very hot expansion called the cosmic microwave background, you didn't need to wait for all the old astronomers who believed the universe was infinite, uh, infinitely old to die for the new idea to take hold. It switched very quickly. And this is what, uh, 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 there's a philosopher of science, I believe his name is, uh, is Kuhn, who said it's the paradigm shift, that there's a quick change, relatively quick change from one point of view to another. But what I was just saying is that uh, I don't think and I've seen this, it's like people, scientists aren't necessarily trying to be biased, but we can't uh, sort of divorce ourselves from that because as human beings, you're always gonna have a certain point of view. You're always gonna have, and it's good because you wanna defend that certain point of view and, and look at it this way, look at it that way to keep that point of view going, except you have to let it go at some point where the experiments just don't support that anymore. And that I think is the value of the scientific process that at some point the experiments don't support your position and you have to accept what the reality is. And there's been a few scientists who never accepted that. Um, there's a few people who never quite accepted the big bang theory. Again, not that it's right, but that the evidence is overwhelmingly on that front. And then some people were like, no, no, the universe is still infinitely old. This is all different kinds of explanations. But again, that's, like I said, it's reflecting human nature and we're humans and just like everybody else, but hopefully, and, and what we've seen is the scientific process over time does mat matter and does separate the good from the bad over time. I, um, yeah, I've, you know, whether it be science or I've heard the expression, you know, masonry advances one funeral at a time. The, the basic idea, right, is mm -hmm. that, you know, but the, as, as you know, you say, that's, that's not the hope, um, uh, right? These paradigm shifts don't have to come when the old guard all passes away, right? Paradigm shifts can come if there's evidence or, or you know, something persuasive to kind of force the issue. Mm -hmm. One thing that I really found fascinating when I was talking to Jason Rhodes, um, now I'll throw a picture up on the screen, you know, in our lodge room here at the Windsor Masonic Temple, we have, uh, a picture of uh, the Pythagorean theorem of Euclid's, uh, I should know that Euclid's 42nd problem, if I do recall, <laughs> right, three, four, five. And, you know, that's something that was discovered or proved um, you know, over 2,000 years ago, uh, over, you know, over 4,000 years ago, really, or not, <laughs> whatever, over 2,000 years ago. <laughs> um, but yet, you know, you have a spaceship being launched up or a telescope being being built being getting ready to launch into the solar system uh that's you know named after the person who proved this that's using these very simple geometric principles that have been known for thousands of years to understand you know the furthest reaches of our universe and how our universe works um 
I guess for the Spitzer mission, for your work, um, I guess, you know, how do you find it like these, these, it just amazes me how you have these simple, quote unquote, simple ideas, things that have been known for thousands of years that we're still using in our ability to understand the, the world and the universe. Uh, it, it certainly is one of those things that is, uh, I guess, uh, satisfying is the way you, uh, to me to say it, that is that um, it's not that things aren't complicated or it's not that things can't get complicated, but what is truly amazing about the universe and Einstein has famously been quoted, his gave a quote is that what's most something along the lines of what the most amazing thing about the uh, uh the, the most inexplicable thing about the universe is that it's uh, understandable or something along those lines. And it is, that's the thing is that we are using a lot of basic concepts, some of them which date back thousands of years to understand uh, something that's much, much bigger than us, much more complicated than we could have ever imagined in many ways. And it may yet become so much more complicated that, you know, some of these, you know, you know, that we're, you know, we have no, idea of how complicated it can get, but there's still some very basic ideas underpinning all of this stuff. And I think that's the thing that has always attracted me to astronomy and, 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 and just science in general is that um, not all of the concepts, you know, there's a lot of concepts that are very difficult and take many, you know, layers upon layers and upon layers to understand, but there are some which you actually it's not that complicated. We thought they were, but then you can actually break it down into some component parts. And, and those component parts are relatively simple to understand and you put them together and that, you know, helps us un understand it. And I think that's what often gets lost in teaching science as a series of facts <laughs> in, in most uh, schools is that it, science is not the ultimate, you know, it's not a body of knowledge. It is a way of doing things. And the way of doing things is you take what you have. You have to take these very fundamental concepts of mathematics and uh, the basics of physics and chemistry. And now we're going to astrobiology. So biology, you put those things together and that's, you know, it gives us all of the things that we see in the universe. And that's one of the things that really I find both, you know, like I said, satisfying, but also fascinating is the idea that you have, um, uh, you 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 learn a certain set of things, and but you can uh, put them together in a way to understand the universe. In particular, I mean, the, the best example of this is chemistry. I mean, again, people don't may not know that um, the basics of chemistry, the periodic table, you know, it wasn't until I mean, people knew various different kinds of elements existed, but the idea periodic table how that, you know, relations between each of those elements as they get heavy along those lines. Um, and, but that is, I mean, the universe is not made up of anything other than that. It's not made any, you, we don't need new elements every day as we're observing uh, to understand, you know, the universe. It is those very basic components of the periodic table that if you look at it, that's what the universe is made out of. Yeah. I think I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson so, so many talk about, you know, it's in the stars, it's, it's in us, you know, it, it's yeah. not a lot of things, but from, 
you know, relatively simple or small things, you can create some very complex and, and you know, beautiful uh, uh, systems. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, by, by the way, that's not to say that there weren't certain things that weren't discovered in space first. <laughs> in fact, helium, named after the god of the sun, Helios, was first discovered when people were taking spectra of the sun. Spectrum is when you split the light through a prism. And uh, people thought, oh, my God, this, this is, um, um, you know, something is on the sun that wasn't on the earth. And they were right in that case. And eventually we found helium on the earth as well. So there was an element that was common on the earth that was in space. But then there are other elements. Uh, in particular, there was one called nebulium, um, which was in these, uh, particularly where either stars were forming or stars had died and people would look at those. And that's one of the things that Spitzer studied, particularly young star forming regions, uh, as well as what are called supernova remnants. Um, and so people would look at those and they, they saw, you know, the pattern that they saw were uh, not familiar to, for anything on the periodic table. So they thought it was an entirely new element like helium. What it ended up being was that, no, it was just the physical conditions that this was a very thin gas um, uh, that collisions amongst the atoms were not very common and that you would get those. And in fact, we were able to reproduce those from, uh, with gas on Earth, particularly like it was varieties of oxygen or nitrogen and so on. Uh, but it was just interesting that, again, it is other than sort of this odd case of helium, uh, really the universe is the stuff that we see in the periodic table. Most of the period isn't as common as a few of them. So, and the ones that are the most common things of those hydrogen and helium are the things that were more mostly created, hydrogen certainly in most of helium that was created pretty much at the beginning of the universe, but most of the other elements were forged in stars through fusion. And so this is what Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, talks about the universe is in us. Carl Sagan said, you know, we are star stuff. And that's what he's talking about is that these heavier elements, uh, the, particularly the ones that are most common, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, are really from the fusion furnaces of stars. But again, these are fundamental basic building blocks uh, and um, the universe is made out of these. And it's always, and the mysteries that we work on is like, how do you take the basic laws of physics that we know? How do you take the basic elements from chemistry that we know and you put them together and we see what we see when we look out into the universe? So you are, uh, this is a bit like a, uh, a rock star. You're on your, your greatest hits tour for yeah. the, the Spitzer Telescope. Um, because I understand that uh, it completed its mission in uh, uh, last year, 2020. I always wondered uh, what happened. Is it just, is it still just floating around up there uh, after it completes its mission? Does it fall back down to earth? But also, you know, what are, what are some of the, the greatest hits um, of the telescope in its 12 year mission? Um, some things that it discovered that you know, you're particularly proud of, or the team is proud of, uh, and, and what's it up to right now? Is it still just up there circling us all? Yeah, so uh, I have 17-year mission, actually. So. 2020, that's right. Yeah, that's a little bit less than that, 16 and change, but um, so yeah, so first of all, if you remember, I mentioned, so Spitzer is actually in an Earth trailing orbit, so it's going to remain in orbit around the sun like the Earth is orbiting the, around the sun, and in fact, because it's trailing us, it will eventually come meet the earth in about 60 years on the other side as that it's a, you know, it will slowly approach the earth from the other side. Um, uh, 
again, it's right now, it's been shut down. It, it's not listening to for signals or anything. Um, and part of it was, um, so there is sort of two major phases to the mission. There was what we called the cold mission where we had liquid helium on board, the liquid helium uh, was evaporating, but as the process of the evaporation was, you know, and, and it was keeping the instruments cold. But once we lost the liquid helium, many of our instruments no longer functioned and we warmed up, but we, by warming up, we, I mean, we went from five degrees Kelvin to 30 degrees Kelvin, which is again, remember the uh, Kelvin scale is uh, minus 273 degrees centigrade. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it was still very cold and we were able to continue for many years uh, with those fewer instruments to be able to uh, study the universe. And, but starting off, I think in terms of, um, uh, so in many, for all intents and purposes, it's basically space junk at this point. Um, but the main thing is the uh, successes were just enormous. And in, uh, on, on, even though the telescope itself is no longer functioning, um, the huge amount of data that we have, we're still sifting through it. So the discoveries will be coming through for many, many years to come from the archive of data that it's created. But sort of beginning, I think really nearby in terms of its sort of greatest hits, one of it was uh, Spitzer discovered the largest ring of Saturn. And you would think, wow, well, I mean, if it's the biggest ring of Saturn, isn't that like the easiest one to find? <laughs> Why did we miss this largest ring of Saturn for you know hundreds of years? And it turns out that this uh, very, very large ring of Saturn is it's actually very tenuous. So it doesn't scatter optical light very much, but it's warm enough that it was emitting in the infrared. So you looking at this in the infrared, we were able to see this incredibly large ring of Saturn. And also um, we were able to study comets in our solar system. And there was a mission out of JPL where, called Deep Impact where a, a projectile was launched to hit a comet. Uh, and there was a spacecraft that was monitoring that, but there were all these telescopes that were monitoring. The idea was that the surface of the comet, as it comes close to the sun and further away over you know, the millennia that it's going around, uh, gets essentially weathered. That is, it's interacting with the warmth of the sun and that's what makes it evaporate. That's what gives the comet the big tail. Um, but there's chemistry, you're putting energy on the surface and therefore you've got chemistry going on on the surface. So it's not the pristine material from which it had formed, but inside the comet, this ice within it is much more pristine. And so that's what was supposed to bring it out. And so we were able to um, observe that particularly with Spitzer and Spitzer also observes other stars and was able to see similar chemistry of akin to the comet that we had the deep impact mission on. And so we could see that it looks like other solar systems have similar chemistry to ours. Uh, it was able to observe young star forming regions. So we were able to peer at these baby stars. Um, and then in particular, the area that I work on, which is these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies, oftentimes they're enshrouded by dust. And so Spitzer was able to peer through that dust to study more of these and the emission of the black hole has no emission, but as material falls into the black hole, it heats up and emits at lots of different wavelengths. But if it's uh, at, the, at the centers of some galaxies, there's, it's pretty dusty. So we could look through the dust and study those as well. And then you get further and further out. We studied star formation, not only in our galaxy, but in other galaxies. And then the most interesting bit we were able to see because of our great 
sensitivity, we were able to see these very, very early galaxies, which was a bit of a surprise, not that they existed, we always knew that they would, but uh, in the infrared and, and in combination with uh, other great observatories like the Hubble Space Telescope and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, uh, but we were able to particularly get the uh, whether there was activity going on, for example, that there was a supermassive black hole early on. So there's excess light coming out of it that you would not expect based on the, you know, the total stellar population. Um, and these are called active galactic nuclei. Or you know, when you combine Hubble and Spitzer in particular, we could get sort of a sense of the age of the stars. And we saw that there are some very young galaxies that had sort of oldish stars. So they, they were able to form stars very quickly in the early universe. And that was, a, that was a surprise. And so that was one of the key things that we were able to do looking at these longer wavelengths in particular, because as the universe is expanding, that light is being stretched out. And this is called the cosmological redshift. So things are being shifted towards the longer wavelengths of light. That's what we call it, a redshift. And so that was another key thing that we were able to find these very early galaxies looking very far away. And the further away you look with a telescope, you're the earlier you're looking back into the history of the universe, simply because the light from that location, that location now is not young anymore, but the light that was emitted when it was young took it this long to get to us. So instantaneously, it's not young, but we are seeing it as it was because it took so long to, for the light to get here. And in the infrared, we could get a good sense of how old the stars were uh, in those early galaxies. And it looks like uh, star formation in galaxies started very early on uh, after the Big Bang. So these were at least you know, just a few of um, the, the great discoveries that were made, particularly, um, uh, and I'll bring it back to, the area that I worked in is the inactive galactic nuclei. Uh, they're particularly, um, as material falls into the black hole, it heats up and it hits up its environment. So it, looking at it in the infrared actually is a very efficient way of picking out these active galactic nuclei. So we had huge surveys that were found very, very large numbers of these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies that were have material falling into them. So this is just a few of the highlights um, uh, of the Spitzer Space Telescope. I would encourage people to go online and do a search on uh, the Spitzer science. And uh, I, and I, uh, but, um, uh, and I don't wanna sort of diminish any one science, but I will end with, I think one of the things that was again, the most unexpected in terms of what Spitzer was able to do. And that is um, shortly, you know, a few years before the launch of Spitzer, the first planets around other stars were detected. And oftentimes one of the ways that you detect these planets around other stars is what's called the eclipse method or the transit method. So if you have a star and it has a planet, if that, and you're, uh, the viewer is the telescope, if that planet passes in front of the star, there's a minuscule dimming of the star because the planet is now blocking some of that light. So using that technique, we've been able to find a lot of uh, star uh, planets around other stars. Now notice, that's only for a special case that it has to be properly aligned. That is, if the planet is in orbit, but the plane of that solar system is different, so it's going like this, you're never gonna get an eclipse. It has to be you know, like this. So, um, but what's interesting about what we were able to do with Spitzer was, so this is what's called the eclipse, but then there's what's called a secondary eclipse. And that is 
the planet goes behind a star. Now, the planet itself is not generating, you know, it's not doing fusion to generate light, but it is warm. And that warmth is generating its own infrared light because it's not very hot, but it's warm enough. So the star is emitting infrared light. The planet is emitting infrared light. And when the planet goes behind the star, so if you image them, again, you're not, you can't separate the planet out from the star. It's just a dot on your picture. Um, but what's happening is that when the planet is next to the star, you're getting starlight plus planet light. And when the planet is behind the star, you're only getting starlight. And if you take two images where you follow it uh, over time and the planet is behind the star and you subtract it, you're left with just the light from the planet. So we were able to detect the light from the planet. And because the infrared light is proportional to the amount of the temperature, we were able to get the temperature of the planets, excuse me, um, orbiting these other stars. So that was an incredible success for Spitzer. And part of it was that we were able to uh, get a sense of how warm those planets were, how warm they were based on which part of the orbit they were in. Because obviously, if you're over here and there's sunlight is illuminating one side of the planet, that's warmer. But when, when it comes over here, you're seeing the night side of the planet. And so we could compare the day side temperature to the night side temperature uh, of planets. And there we and we were looking at these, uh, these are called like Jupiter-like planets or hot Jupiters. Uh, and so they tended to be like Jupiter, except much closer to their star. Uh, and we found there were planets that had relatively little day uh, time and nighttime temperature differences, not as much as we would expect. What that meant is that these were planets that had a lot of, must have fast winds to redistribute that heat across the planet. So just by being able to measure the temperatures of these planets along their orbit, and I think this was one of the, the most you know, exciting results to come from Spitzer. And it's not even an area that I work in really. Uh, I work in it a little bit, was, was the ability to tell that not only you know, could we see the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature of the planet, but the fact that the difference between the two tells us how much of a difference, how much uh, the, of the atmosphere plays a role in redistributing the daytime temperature to the nighttime temperature. So essentially we could tell that there were winds on these planets. So uh, those are incredibly exciting things. And I, again, highly recommend your viewers to go and check out some of these results because uh, they were certainly exciting for us and, and some of them are incredibly surprising, but that's uh, uh, one of the great advantages of having these kinds of general observatories. And this is why they were called the great observatories. They're more sort of focused observatories. But yeah, to be able to do different kinds of science and you know, from the new ring around Saturn that we didn't know about to planets around other stars to the youngest galaxies, which don't <laughs> have uh, stars that seem to be pretty old already were you know, some of, I think, really great hits of uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope. Yeah, you, you sent me a, a link, uh, I'll throw it in the description to uh, a website, to the, the Spitzer website learn more about the mission, um, you know, 17 year mission, a lot of the pictures coming from it, a lot of the stuff you discussed. Uh, it sounds like the, the discovery of the planets would be, you know, Spitzer's Freebird, um, but. Pretty much, yeah, I, 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 like I said, even though I've, I've expanded into that area now to study those, but really, uh, I, I, I freely, because it's not my area, I have no problem touting that one and then doing that hit over and over again, because it truly was amazing. And there's a lot of observations that we did of exoplanets, um, these planets around other stars that still 
people are still studying. And that was what I was mentioning in terms of the Spitzer archives. It has huge archives over these nearly 17 years of the mission. And so scientists are still going through them. And sometimes they're re-examining things that um, uh, have already been published with a new eye so they can get a little bit more information out of it. Or there are things that that are there that people still haven't figured found out yet. So that's uh, so I have to be a little bit you know, so uh, careful in saying that these are the the only greatest hits. You know, so <laughs> the archive may even it may yet surprise us. Uh, you know, last thing I'll, I'll ask you about because you know I'm I'm not smart enough to be to be driven crazy by this, but. If I was, uh, you know, working for JPL or, or had the, that level of intelligence, I think I one thing that would drive me crazy, and you mentioned this in your answer, is, um, you know, the, the length of time it takes light to reach us and for us to make these observations. You know, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, like finding a, a a letter in a bottle on the beach that's you know dated hundred years ago or something it is, then you have no way to know what happened in the hundred years from when you found that letter, you know, whatever happened to the person who sent it. You know, I just think, um, you know, because it takes so long, you're seeing these young galaxies, but as you said, you know, they're not young anymore. It's just takes so long for the light to reach us. Um, I guess, or is it just one of those things where it's just a lot of the universe, so, so I'd be frustrated by it, but I would think, you know, I'd be sitting up night after night thinking what's happening you know at that galaxy now and i'll never be able to know and even those galaxies that make it beyond our, our light cone as the universe expands you know do you ever think about what you're seeing when the light reaches us versus what's happening contemporaneously or is it possible to think about those things without going insane oh absolutely absolutely no this is this is the interesting thing about um why astronomy is in many ways uh has uh, analogies to anthropology is that you tend to do population studies. Now we live long enough to sort of follow, you know, children as they become, uh, you know, teenagers to become adults and then to become older people and so on um, to get the arc. But more often than not within one anthropologist's career, they can't, you know, you can't wait for all of that to happen. So what you end up doing is you try and, you know, if you're studying a particular population of kids, then you try and find a similar population that is older and then another population that is older still, but is akin to that one. So that's what we end up doing in astronomy is that we know that there are these very young galaxies that you know, we're seeing as they're, but then if you look a little bit closer, that means those are you know, less further away, which means you're seeing them that are they're less old. Now it's hard to do a perfect apples to apples comparison, but you can say, okay, of you know, what became of this group of children? Well, let me see what is similar about them and then see if I can follow them at an older group and then in an older group. So this kind of population study is how we get around that problem of, because yeah, it drives us crazy too. We want to know what happened to that thing, but uh, we're doing the same things that most sociologists or anthropologists are doing is you end up doing population studies. So you can't speak to that one child as to how they would have grown up but what you can say is that children of, you know, that were in this situation tend to have grown up to be like this and then are adults that are like this. Uh, again, not a perfect description, but I think if you do your controls right, if you're sort of narrowing your question well enough, you can make, again, 
reasonably uh, or reasoned arguments and reasoned conclusions about what became of them. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, we'd go crazy just like you're saying. It's like, what happened? <laughs> well, uh, what happened here is I, I had an absolutely great time uh, speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to join us on the Square and Compass podcast. I'll just mention everybody watching. Um, hit the, you know, all the things you say. Hit the like button, subscribe button, follow. Go give me money on Patreon if you want. All that good stuff. Uh, from your end of the world down uh, at JPM. Um, it seems like there's a ton of stuff happening with NASA, with JPL. If people, I guess... If people want to learn more, uh, I'll leave the link for Spitzer down in the description. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if people want to learn more just about what's happening with JPL, what's happening with NASA, the Mars rover, all that type of stuff, uh, where can they go and, and what can they, where do they go? So, yeah, J, uh, jpl.nasa.gov is the JPL website. NASA.gov is the overall NASA one, which encompasses all of the different aspects of NASA, which includes the human exploration uh, robotic exploration, which is what mostly we do at JPL, as well as the um, first A in NASA, the aeronautics part, which is, you know, the, so you can go to all of those different kinds of things. And uh, right now, uh, as you said, there's a lot of exciting things going on. The Perseverance rover just landed on Mars not too long ago. So there's a lot of information about that uh, in terms of JPL's involvement in astrophysics. We are involved with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the successor to both the Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes. In fact, it has more wavelength overlap with the Spitzer Space Telescope, and that will be launching. Uh, it's scheduled to launch October of this year, 2021. So we're all looking very forward to that. Um, then following that is the Euclid mission that you mentioned that Jason is working on um, that'll launch a few years after uh, James Webb. And so um, there's a lot happening. And uh, But the one thing I will say is what you mentioned about uh, whether you're, uh, you know, a question of intelligence. Intelligence is important for this, but the main thing that any science needs, not just, you know, space exploration science, is dedication. That's the one thing that I think outweighs everything else is that it takes, a, most of these things, they are complicated. They take a long time, but if people have the dedication, uh, that stick as it were, is I think what has gotten us here with both the Perseverance rover, Spitzer mission, uh, as well as the, uh, the other missions that are coming up. Uh, it, it definitely, yes, intelligence is a, is a valuable asset, but I've known very many intelligent people who just don't have the perseverance. <laughs> and so they tend to not be very successful in whatever they're trying. So what I would say is don't, don't underestimate, you know, and don't just say you're not smart enough or whatever. It's like, yeah, smartness combined with the stick to I think is really what's given us a success. And, and I think that's, uh, if there's a message to go out there is if you love this and you, you, you know, you're willing to put in the hard work and the time and the effort, then I think you'll be successful at it.